Hello and welcome to Your Magic. I am your host, Michelle T. And uh, you guys, you know, I have a new book out. It's called Knocking Myself Up, a memoir of my infertility. And to celebrate, we are bringing on different guests who can speak to some aspect of reproduction, motherhood, abortion, sperm donorship. Today's guest is Shanti Sakarin, author of the grown-up novels, The Prayer Room and Lucky Boy, plus the YA novel, The Samosa Rebellion. She writes for the TV show, New Amsterdam, and yes, she is a mom. We're going to talk about Geminis, being bad at pregnancy, Shiva, the Lord of Destruction, and more. And also, if you want to help support making this podcast, check out patreon.com backslash thisisyourmagic, where you can get all sorts of perks, a monthly tarot reading based on your zodiac and the phases of the moon, tarot workshops where we dive deep into a single card, that sort of thing. We appreciate you so much. And also, if you want to help support making this podcast, check out patreon.com backslash thisisyourmagic, where you can get all sorts of perks, a monthly tarot reading based on your zodiac and the phases of the moon, tarot workshops where we dive deep into a single card, that sort of thing. We make this podcast as a real labor of love, and we appreciate all of you for supporting it. If you really want to wear your heart on your sleeve or on your baseball cap, check out our super cool elemental t-shirts and our fashion-forward dad-style baseball hats at our shop at thisisyourmagic.com backslash shop. Okay, now let's get on with the show. Okay, so I have something possibly ridiculous that I would like to share with you. I think that spirit or energy, the universe, I don't know, maybe a ghost, maybe an ancestor, my higher self, something is communicating with me through my cell phone, my Words with Friends app to be exact. I'm sort of obsessed with Words with Friends, to be honest. I know I'm nearly a decade late to this party, but whatever, I don't really care about playing games on my phone. But during my epic divorce of 2020, I found that obsessively playing a Scrabble-like word game really took my mind off my personal despair. That and trolling Pet Finder for all the dogs I couldn't have. So I got a Words with Friends habit and I still play, but I pretty much only play the computer. And they create these little avatars to kick your ass on the computer games. They're always grouped around a theme, like there'll be a gardening theme and you're playing against all these gardener characters. Currently, it's culturally Colombian, and I'm about to get whooped by an avatar named Gaita Player Phoebe. Back in June, there were a bunch of queer characters, and one night I was sitting in bed, half playing on my phone, half having a stressful conversation with my husband about whether we should lease an electric Jeep. I mean, of course we should. It's so much better for the environment. It's actually a car I think is cute, and I think most cars are dumb. It gives my husband immense joy to drive such a thing. I mean, I could see dopamine flooding his body at the thought of it. But I have deep, gnarly scarcity issues, and the thought of spending money or increasing a monthly bill, ugh, it sends me into a deep, damp, scared place where I totally forget that I am a child of the universe and will always be okay. Distracting myself from this talk, I looked at my phone and I noticed I was about to start playing a trans character on Words with Friends. I told my husband, who is trans, and we had a little moment about representation on word-based cell phone games. And then the trans character played his word, and the word was Jeep. Weird. Obviously, we had to get the Jeep. We did, and the sky hasn't fallen. I breathed through my anxiety, and our kid loves flying around in it with the doors off. We haven't bought gas in months. Was Spirit trying to guide me through a benevolent trans avatar? Well, it worked. Last night, I received a tarot deck in the mail, Oracle of the Loas by the artist Eugene Huffman, a queer artist with a deep personal connection to New Orleans and to voodoo. I was planning on doing a reading with it, but first I wanted to zone out with my stupid phone. 
the computer played their first word first, and I watched as my seven tiles appeared on my screen. I blinked. I shuffled one tile, I shuffled another. With all seven tiles, I could spell the word hungen. It's the masculine term for a priest in the Haitian voodoo tradition. Okay, weird. No, really, that's weird. It's rare enough to be able to create a word with all seven tiles, but the name for a voodoo priest, as I am about to do a reading with a new voodoo deck, that's uncanny. While the first message from beyond, Jeep, was very clear and helpful, this second one was more in line with the random psychic blips or spirit high fives I normally get. They are uncanny, but not very informative or useful. It's more like the spirit world just popping up to say, yo, I'm here. I really am here, you know. You can either stay there with your face stuck in your screen, or you can like open yourself up to me. Hungen. Like the spirit of the deck sliding into my phone to grab my attention. Hello, we're waiting for you. And really, a little nudge like that, a freaky little reminder that spirit is real and that it's all around me, is at least as important as a message from a queer computer game avatar to sign off on my husband leasing a Jeep. Here's Shanti. Well, Shanti, thank you so much for being on your magic. It's so great to see your face again. It's great to see you too, Michelle. It's been a while. So this is, you know, a, a mystical type of podcast. So I wanted to just jump in and talk to you about like, what were your, you know, growing up, were you raised with any sort of spiritual tradition or spiritual beliefs? And how was that for you? Yes. So my parents are Hindu and they're very Hindu. Um, my dad actually went from being raised an atheist. He was, he was raised kind of by um, parents who are anti-caste, uh, socialist, atheist, and then had his own spiritual awakening when I was about five or six years old. And he got, my mom had always been pretty steadily Hindu and religious, but my dad got very um, devoted around, around that time when I, was, when I was a little kid. So I grew up with Hinduism and with, you know, my parents educating themselves. My dad learned Sanskrit and, and he can basically just, he, he's like a pitch hitter priest now. He can just sort of, you know, we had a friend whose priest didn't show up to their wedding and my dad like swooped in like like the rookie waiting on the sidelines. So Oh my God. <laughs> so there, the Hinduism was pretty strong for me growing up. Um I remember being just as a young child fascinated by the Hindu temples we'd go to in India and being fascinated by the mythology of it um, and some of the iconography. It's very vivid, it's very um just it just captures your imagination really uh and as i've grown older i've you know i've spent so much time in hindu temples because my parents were very involved in theirs that i've kind of stepped away from the actual temple space and the ritual of it i think i believe in in some sort of spirituality i call myself a hindu because culturally that feels right for me um and at this point, you know, I'm I'm sort of just sitting where I am with it. That's beautiful. Was there a particular deity that really spoke to you when you were younger or even now that you feel like you have a particular resonance with? My, my family and my, my dad has, has always been really devoted to the god Shiva. And I've always found Shiva to be really interesting, really powerful, Shiva, you know, in some forms embodies it, it, both a, a male and female form, sort of a, a, a 
gender by non-binary form almost. Um, Shiva's a dancer. You know, he does his cosmic dance and that keeps the the universe going. Um, He gets angry. He's a lord of destruction. I always found that really interesting. So I love this one story where the the gods were trying to set Shiva up with a woman. Uh, And so they sent the god of love, Kama, to um, find him when he was meditating. And Kama, with his, he has this like big flowered bow. He sneaks up on Shiva and Shiva's meditating. And as Kama sneaks up on him, Shiva wakes up and he gets really, really, really angry. And this like beam of like fire like shoots from his head and just like incinerates Kama, the god of love. <laughs> which I found fascinating. And um, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, love spells aren't consensual, so. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that is a great story. I love that. And I love your description of Shiva. Um, What astrological sign are you? I'm a Gemini. Oh, cool. Oh, that's so great. I think Geminis, we're really proud of ourselves for being Geminis. Do you find that? (laughs) You have to be because you're a little maligned, let's be real. You need need to stick up for yourself. I love Geminis. Yeah, everyone else is kind of tired of us, but, you know. It's just because of the dating world. It's just young, young dating Gemini's have ruined it for all the all the Gemini's everywhere. But uh, you sure guys are have. so great. You like bring in such. Um, I just see Gemini's as like giant satellite dishes for everything. Like you're receiving all the information, all the thoughts, all the ideas, all the vibes, all the energies. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think depending on all the things that make a person a person for some people that is really hard to navigate all that energy. It's hard to be grounded. It's hard to, yeah, it's hard to be grounded. And other people, because of different, you know, upbringing or, you know, other other astrological influences, like they're more grounded with it. You seem super grounded. I think I'm pretty grounded. I've been told I'm a Taurus rising and that Oh, that helps. would make sense. Yeah, okay. yeah, definitely. Yeah. That yeah. would help. Yeah, you know, I don't... <laughs> Maybe I've I've sort of learned to live in the world as a Gemini. Learn to live in the world and not piss people off. That's what <laughs> Geminis, I think, have to do. Well, um, I don't normally talk necessarily about parenthood, but we're doing this whole uh, grouping of episodes because I have my new book, Knocking Myself Up, coming out about mm-hmm. when I was working on getting pregnant. Yeah. Um, and so I want to talk to you about that. Um, the fact that you're a mom and you're doing all this stuff with kids and what, how did you decide to become a mom? Did you, was it something that you just sort of like always knew that you wanted to do or? I think I had always wanted to be a mother. You know, I don't feel like I ever had the conversation with myself where I let myself consider the possibility of not having children. Maybe culturally, it was just, you know, if you decide not to have a child in in, a, in the Indian culture, I mean, that's a big, big decision. And I think it's a big decision for anyone, really, to, to decide whether or not to have a child. Um, but for me especially, you know, I think my family had always just created a narrative of, of having children and and. I had never really questioned that narrative. And now looking back, 
you know, I, I'm glad I have my children, but I, I wonder, like, if I'd really thought about it, what would I have done? What would I have done? So I had my first child when I was 30. And I was married. I'd been married for four years or so. So it made sense. It was all kind of, you know, I don't know, kosher, halal. It, it, it made sense to me to have, um, to have a child at that point, point in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what was your pregnancy like? Did you like being pregnant? You know, I can't say I'm really good at being pregnant. Some people love it and they're good at it. I was sick a lot for the first three months. Oh, you can't um, be good at it if you're sick a lot. I know. Just, no. And then I never really had my appetite when I was pregnant. Like food just didn't feel right to me. It didn't taste right. didn't smell right. I just ate because, you know, I had to not get sick and I had to keep myself standing. So food was not quite the joy that that I hoped it would be. I did love my body. I loved having a big belly. You know, I didn't have to worry about, I don't know, my abdominal condition. I just had a big old belly. And there is something really like liberating about it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think it's like, I don't know, being raised female and being so conditioned to think about your body in this particular way. And then mm-hmm. just be like, oh, we're, we've just entered into a different realm of having a body. And it's so fun. Yeah. I, I did like that part of it. I loved feeling a baby inside me and kicking and and. Um, yeah, it was, there's a, there's a lot to it that's very magical and very grounding. I felt like, you know, after a lifetime of trying to make my body into the thing that it wasn't, being pregnant was a time when my body just came back to itself. You know, I ate what I needed to eat. It, my body looked the way that nature intended it to. It just was, you know whatever, my fat and muscle percentages, they all went to like their natural state. I didn't have to worry about about anything really, except feeding myself and feeding a baby. I had it. Um, I really did. I, I did. I did have an appetite. Did I ever Great. have an appetite? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was fun because I felt like you know, I'm sober, but it felt, I was like, is this what it feels like to be a stoner? Like I like snacks are so good all the time. You yeah. Know? And yeah. I had my, my doctor tell me at some point, like, wow, you're kind of gaining a lot. You, I think you need to like, you know, be more thoughtful about what you eat. And I was like, absolutely not. Like, this is like the one time <laughs> that I feel so liberated to just like sit and eat a pint of ice cream. I'm going to do it. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should carry that liberation into our post baby lives more than we do. Maybe I, I agree with you. I agree yeah. with you. I mean, my body has really changed. Um, of course, like forever from having a child and, you know, my, you know, I have like a little pooch and my kid's always just like shoving his face into it. And I'm just like, Oh yeah. Like, <laughs> like, like this is the body that I need for this job. Right. Like I'm not supposed to have mm-hmm. some like hard, you know, body mm-hmm. where I'm like, like I got a mm-hmm. six pack or something. Like I'm supposed to have this like soft body to like hold, hold a child. And cause my body, yeah. it's like, I don't know. It's like, it's not your own anymore once you're pregnant, but then it kind of continues to not be solely your own body, you know, which I know like people, you know, people have different experiences of, of liking that or resenting that, but I'm, I'm, I feel okay with it. I'm like, yeah, my body is also like a source of comfort now for this child. So it's cool if it's squishy. Yeah, it just needs to be there, really. And you have two children, right? 
Yeah, I have two children. Um, they're nine and 14. Now. Oh, my God. They're real people. Yeah. yeah. Wow. What is that like? You know, it's a new thing every day, especially with my 14-year-olds. My my nine-year-old is in that that nice, like, Freudian latency period. He's, you know, he's into his soccer. He's into his, like, games and friends. And my 14-year-old is the one who's sort of growing and changing every day. He's really come into himself. He's he's kind of become a jock. He uh, he has his like exercises he has to do every night before bed. He's like starting to really care about like what he looks like. I never thought that would happen. Wow. He, he looks at his hair in the mirror. Oh God, um, that's so cute. Yeah. He's starting high school, which will be a, uh, a new experience altogether mm-hmm. in the fall. Yeah, no doubt. What signs are they? So my older one, Avi, he's 14. He is a, an Aquarius. And Ash, who is nine, is a Gemini. So we have oh my, my, God. my husband is an Aquarius. So two Aquarians and two Geminis. What were your like, uh, what were what, like, what were your, bir- your births like, your, your labors? My labors. So pretty different. So with Avi, I was actually living in England at the time. So I had that whole NHS experience. Wow. Okay. I really want to see, to compare and contrast. Yeah. So these experiences, I would go to a clinic, like for my checkups, I didn't have like one dedicated OB who would see me every time. And I rarely ever saw an OB. You really see an OB if, if you're having something complicated going on with your pregnancy. So I was pretty straightforward and I mostly just saw midwives and like nurse midwives in the clinic. And they would just check me. I was always like interested in how they would be able just to just feel my belly from the outside and be like, oh yeah, that's his head, that's his elbow. And they were pretty no-nonsense, knowledgeable women. And then my labor, I um, I think I, I was having Braxton Hicks contractions and I thought they were real. And then, so I went in once and they sent me back home, but then they kept happening and they seemed to be happening like really close together. And I think there's maybe a myth out there that contractions happen at steady intervals that then get shorter and shorter and shorter. And I I don't think that's like real for a lot of women. I think it's because mine just felt really like, like one minute apart from the beginning but maybe that was false labor. I don't know. Anyway, I went in a second time. The midwife was checking me um, internally and she accidentally broke my water with her hand. Oh my so, God. <laughs> that Whoa. Thing, did she apologize? <laughs> <laughs> so things started kicking off, I think, earlier than they needed to. I was at full term, so that wasn't an issue, but but it became much more medicalized than it needed to. Um, I had to go on Pitocin to increase the frequency or the, the, the intensity of my contractions. And um, things were kind of sped along. I tried to do an epidural, but it only worked on one half of my body. Are you serious? That must have felt so weird. It was very weird. There's something weird about my my spine, I guess. So... It worked on like the left side of my body and not the right. Also very Gemini. Yeah. And also (laughs) just me. Like it couldn't just work. Uh So that was strange. And, you know, we were in labor for like maybe 
18 to 20 hours on and off. There were some, you know, real family drama moments in there. The night before, when I was just feeling the first contractions, I told my husband, I was like, it was like midnight. I was like, oh my God, it's like, I think the contractions are starting. And he was really tired and he was like, oh, just, can you just go to sleep though? (laughs) Let's just sleep. Can you sleep through them? (laughs) I was like, no. But my mom and dad were staying with us and my mom, she sat up with me all night and, and helped me time the contractions. And then when we did end up in labor at the hospital, um, she was so tired. I was tired. She was like trying to feed me yogurt. I didn't want the yogurt. So she got really upset. So then there was like this big fight about the yogurt that like I didn't want to eat. Um, it was it was hard for her also because she's a pediatrician. She's a doctor. And she felt out of her like she felt out of her comfort zone in this British hospital. You know, it, there was that accent thing. There was just a whole different system to deal with. The, it was her being sleepless. There, there was a lot that she was going through. I think in in her own in her own head. I wasn't thinking about that so much. I was thinking about being in labor. And then once we got to it, once we actually delivered Abby, um, I think we were on the verge of having to go in for an emergency cesarean, but I finally managed to to get him out on my half epidural and some laughing gas. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> some laughing gas. That's that kind of nice. Yeah. That's a pretty standard thing there. If you don't want to be on an epidural, they give you what they call gas and air. Wow. So that was that one. With Ash, I'd read all the stuff about a natural birth because I knew the epidural could be problematic. Um, I read about orgasmic birth. I was like, that's not a thing. I guess it is for some people. (laughs) I remember seeing that too when I was pregnant, the orgasmic birth. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So that didn't happen for me. I went in, this was in Oakland, uh, just at the Kaiser. And the whole experience had been pretty different, just, you know, leading up to it with, with the American system. But uh, when I went into Kaiser, um, my waters broke at like at midnight at home. So and, and I knew much more what to expect. So we dropped off our older son, went to the hospital and things proceeded pretty normally. We had some complications with the cord being tied around Ash's neck like twice. Um, oh, also, my epidural just didn't didn't even work at all. Like they were trying to cite it in my spine and it didn't, they, they couldn't find a place to put it in and they were trying and I was getting all these weird pains up and down my legs. Oh, that sounds awful. Oh no. I was like, okay, just stop, stop, stop. This is Give like me the not, gas. Oh. Yeah. It felt like it was not a good thing. So I just stopped the epidural and decided to go. We had my husband and I had, and I had this moment where we we're like, are we are we going to do this? Are you going to do this? Can you do this? And I was like, yes, I can do this. So it was pretty much all natural. And, you know, the the cord managed to get untied from his neck and and he came out through a vaginal birth. Wow. Congratulations. Wow. So the cord kind of unwrapped itself just through the birth process? I don't remember exactly how that happened. I don't know. I mean, how does a cord unwrap itself? Is there a way for a doctor to make that happen? 
This is one of the things I don't remember from my birth. I just know it happened once or twice. I'm wondering how the experience of having gone through that and then also just be becoming a parent, do you feel that it's altered you or impacted you at all, almost like psychically, mystically, or in some sort of deeper emotional way than, you know, not not the way we normally think about emotions? I think becoming a parent has helped me just sort of slow down a little. And, you know, especially when you have a very small child, physically you have to slow down because they take forever to do anything. But also you have the way that you move through the world, which is much more engaged with what you see around you. So I could be walking down the street and, you know, suddenly there's like a bug on a flower, which as a, an adult on my own, I was just breezed by. But when you have a little kid with you, that's like something to look at, a bug on a flower. And so being a parent helped me re-see the world in a way that I'd sort of forgotten to do as an adult. And it also, it grounded me just in terms of my days, in terms of having a routine for my days and thinking of someone who wasn't me and also being really scared about someone who wasn't me. I, knock on wood, have had normal births and, you know, my kids have been relatively healthy, but just living in the world with a child, you know, I can see why people get really religious. Like if you let if you let it get to you, it can be a very, very scary thing to have a child in this world and in this country in particular. Absolutely. So I've had to learn new ways of kind of maybe not thinking about the worst things, calming myself around the worst things and just keeping keeping this world in perspective and and forging ahead. I think parents these days, they, they have to do so much of that. Just the, the basically that, the keeping calm and carrying on, just going, going every day. How do you keep this world in perspective? Do you have tips? Truth tips. You know, some of it comes from my kids. I look at them. They seem pretty happy. They seem pretty okay with the world. I, I just try to keep our, I try to, try to keep our personal world feeling as safe and secure and small as possible. You know, I, I, I try to keep it, I try to give them the sort of a sort of a cocoon, I guess. I mean, I don't keep them in the house all the time, but I, I give them a I, I try to give them a sense of like normalcy and routine. I try to teach them the things that my parents taught me. I try to nag them about the things that my parents nagged me about to some extent, just to keep things feeling normal. And they feed off my energy a lot. If if I'm feeling off, then then they feel off. Mm-hmm. They're very perceptive in that way. Yeah. And I found with things like things like the pandemic, I I think they grounded me because they kept going. They had to keep going. You know, my my kids needed school, they needed activities, they needed their friends. And so I think their needs kept me from obsessing about, you know, the, the illness and the death that was around us for that period because they, you know, they just wanted to see their friends and they needed to get their homework done. And, and their requirements had to supersede my worries. 
What are you, are you working on anything other than, I know that you're doing, you're, you know, you're working on um, New Amsterdam, but do you have any, any novels in the hopper? Yeah. So um, I had one come out for young readers. It's called The Samosa Rebellion. And that came out last year. That's for like nine to 13 year olds. It's a novel. And then I just am finishing the final edits on another middle grade novel. So also for nine to 13 year olds. And it's called Boomy's Boombox. And it's about an Indian American girl. And she's just lost her own father. And before he died, he he left for her this boombox, his own boombox from the 1980s. And there's like a little radio mixtape inside it. And when she plays the tape, you know, through the magic of time travel and 80s music, she gets transported to England, 1986, where her dad is a 12-year-old. And she finds him and they go on these adventures together. And she, her mission is to make her life in the present day somehow better to change her life in some way. I love this. This is so great. It's so imaginative. Thank you so much for, you know, giving me, you know, an hour of your life and and being on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was really fun. It's been a while since I've talked about motherhood. I'm kind of just in it now. It was great to talk about it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Your Magic. We hope you enjoyed it and that you'll be paying more attention to whatever messages the screens in your life are trying to share with you. You can support us, plus get access to a whole bunch of bonus content at patreon.com backslash thisisyourmagic. Thank you to those who support us. Every dollar makes our work possible. You can also support us by buying one of our air, earth, water, or fire t-shirts or logo hats. Go to thisisyourmagic.com backslash shop to see all our merch. Make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thisisyourmagic and subscribe to our newsletter at thisisyourmagic.com. Join us on Discord at the link in the show notes. You can rate us and subscribe right here on Spotify. Do what you need to do to never miss an episode. You can email us at hello at thisisyourmagic.com. We would love to hear from you. Your Magic is Ben Cooley, me, Michelle T., Molly Elizalde, Tony Gannon, Vera Blossom, and our production intern, Kirsten Osai-Bonzu. And our original theme music is by John Kimbrough. Thanks for listening. Thank you.